our new commercial. You get to see it here first. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun. We have our own explosives now. Isn't that kind of cool? Well, that's a commercial. We've run a commercial at the theater since we started meeting here, and it's been the same one. <laughs> and so we've updated it. You got to see it here now. And uh, Lord willing, it'll be on Facebook later this week. And I want to thank the folks that were involved in that. We've got some people with lots of talents at our church, production and videotaping and things like that. Dave Cook, thanks so much for doing those. And then uh, some acting and narrating. And so we're just uh, glad to be able to use those talents for the Lord. And if you take someone to the movies and you're sitting there watching it, and say, hey, that's my church. You want to come? And who knows how God could use that to change their life. Or maybe take the video and share it with them on Facebook. Use it to invite people to church. And so that's why we've used that, uh, that type of thing. And the different signs we use and invitations and whatnot. And some of you might be here because of that. If you're a guest today and uh, you came because of our commercial at the theater, we'd love to hear that from you. And so we've got a little card inside our worship program. I just ask you if you wouldn't mind taking a, a moment, filling that card out. We call it a connection card. And uh, you can do two things with it. You can either drop it in the offering boxes. Uh, we don't pass a plate on Sunday mornings here at Southbridge. We just have these offering boxes that people put their tithes and offerings. Or better than going to that is you can go out to the first time guest kiosk on your way outside. I know it's cold out there. It'll be a quick interaction, I promise. And uh, you can drop the card off out there. We'll give you a gift and uh, we make a donation. Even if you got the popcorn box, we've got an additional gift for you, but we make a donation to another ministry. You can read about that in your worship program. But today we're going to jump back into Acts, the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 17 today, which should mean that we're making progress because we've been in Acts chapter 16, all of 2014, and now we're in Acts chapter 17. So that's going to be good. Let me pray for us and then we'll open up the scriptures together and jump into the message that the Lord has for us this morning. Father God, thank you um, for all the things you do. Thank you for joy and fun and uh, being able to have a good time. Thank you for walking with us through tragedy and trials and all those difficulties too. And Father, I pray for us as a church family um, that you'd bind our hearts together on mission for you, that you'd transform us. I pray as we open up the scriptures, you'd remove distractions, uh, whether those are technical things or whether there are things are going on with kids out in the hallways or whether it's uh, something that's going on in our life that has us um, so preoccupied. God, I pray for these moments you'd meet with us. And we'd open up your word as we read different scriptures that you'd speak into the exact situation in each one of our lives that you would take our lives, shape them, and mold them, um, that we'd be like clay in the potter's hands. And you'd make us into who you want us to be, and you'd have us do what you want us to do, and then our lives would count for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to start this morning just by asking you a question that God used in my life to change the trajectory, the direction of my life. It was one that I would think about as God was drawing me to himself, and it was simply the question, does any of this matter? Uh, does my life matter? And I want you to ask that as you think about your own life. Does what you're doing matter? And I don't know what you do. Like there's different people here that do different things, whether you're designing programs or you're negotiating deals or you're making meals or you're running errands, you serve other people, you do surgery on, on different folks, whatever it is that you do, does it matter? And I'm not asking this question. I'm not asking whether you're successful or not. Because there are people all over the spectrum. It doesn't matter if they spend time just wasting. It's clear that you're wasting their life. Like the people that are addicted to the internet, they say spend 60 hours a week on the internet. That's wasting your life. And people that watch reruns over and over and over again, you're watching Maury Provich in the middle of the day, whatever type of stuff that's going on, Judge Judy, whatever the different shows are. And you're just wasting time, <clears throat> bonbons, whatever the deals. Or people that are at the other end of the spectrum that are high achievers, that are accomplishing more than anybody else. They can all do the same thing and waste their life. My life doesn't matter. I was reading an article this week in the BBC. Uh, it was talking about wasting your life, ironically. And it was an older article from, uh, I think it was 1998. And they did a, an interview with one guy that most of you have probably heard of. His name's Anthony Hopkins. He's a famous actor. Some people say he's the greatest actor uh, alive. He's won an Academy Award. He's won multiple Emmy Awards. He was knighted by the Queen in 2003 uh, for his contribution to the arts. I mean, he's got a lot of accomplishments. And he was quitting acting at the time. 
He'd been doing it for 35 years. He said this. I'm going to give you an exact quote from him. Perhaps at the very pinnacle of his career, perhaps the greatest. He said, I can't take it anymore. This has got to stop. I've wasted my life. Then he says, and I'll paraphrase because it's a little crass. He says, forget this stupid show business, this ridiculous showbiz, this futile, wasteful life. All those years spent in a fake environment, everything was fake. He eventually went back to acting. And think about what acting gave him. Gave him prestige, gave him power, gave him great wealth. He had a name recognition. I mean, if, if, if Anthony Hopkins wanted to go to Brazos for lunch, he didn't have to call and get reservations, just so you know. He shows up. They find a way to get him in. He's got power with his name. But it didn't give him satisfaction. His very own word says, I've wasted my life. He reached the top. There's success. In fact, if you read about a lot of famous people, a lot of people that are high achievers in the business world and places where you get celebrity and sports, um, you find the same type of theme that happens where they ask these questions. A couple weeks ago after church, I had preached a couple times. I get worn out after that, and I just want to veg out sometimes. And so my wife and kids were letting me just kind of lay on the couch. I'm watching TV before the football games had started. I'm watching ESPN, and on comes this interview with Aaron Rodgers. Some of you may have seen it. And Aaron Rodgers, for those of you who don't know, is one of the most famous quarterbacks in the NFL right now, which puts that in perspective, by the way. I have to clarify that. Uh, but he is one of the most uh, famous quarterbacks in the NFL. He's the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. They won the Super Bowl uh, a few years back, a couple years ago. And he was the quarterback, so he's like the leader of the team. And not only did he lead his team to winning that, he also won an award, the most valuable player in that game. And he said, and when he was being interviewed, that was his dream. Like from a childhood, he worked towards that. You think about all the sacrifices he made for that and all the work that was put into that. And he finally accomplished the very thing that he wanted. He said after they won the Super Bowl, he found himself just asking himself this question. Is this it? Is there more? It's not enough. Does it even matter that I won the Super Bowl? Do you, I, I, to be honest with you, I can't remember what year it was they won. I know it wasn't last year. I like football. I can't, it doesn't matter. That's how little it matters. And what about your life? Does it matter? Whether you're making meals or you're making deals or whatever it is you're doing, does it matter? You save someone's life, you're a heart surgeon. Okay, they're still going to die. Did it matter? And that's the question God used to draw me to himself. I would lay in bed as an 18-year-old senior in high school and I'd ask myself, does, does any of this matter? Why am I here? What am I doing? What's the goal? What's the point? It's certainly not to just get your name written down in a history book. Hopkins will have accomplished that. Aaron Rodgers will accomplish that. Lots of people accomplish that. But does it matter? And does your life matter? And today we're going to talk about a life that matters. We're going to look at Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join me in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. We're going to look at the lives of two men that God was using to make a significant difference. And here's why they matter, because they were making an eternal difference. It's Paul and Silas, guys that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. And we're going to read a verse in here that's got a uh, kind of dramatic effect. It says that they're turning the world upside down. And some of us could read that and think to ourselves, well, that's not me. I, and then you fill in the blanks, whatever you do. I work in this cubicle in the back room, or I serve people behind the scenes, or I do this. I'm never going to be a headliner. I stay at home with the kids. I do this. It's not going to be in the news. And you think, I don't turn the world upside down. Well, it's hyperbolic. They're not turning the world upside down. It's wherever they go, the people they come into contact with, they're making an eternal difference in the lives of those people. That's what's turning the world upside down. It's one life at a time. Every once in a while, there's cities coming to Christ and lots of people. A lot of times it's one person. 
And so are you making an eternal difference in the lives of the people you come into contact with? That's turning the world upside down. And what's happened with these guys, to give you the context we saw last week, is they went into Philippi, a Roman colony. They see one woman come to Christ. She's the first convert in Europe. Her name's Lydia. She starts a church in her home. And then she, they go back to this place. They, uh, there's another one individual woman that comes to Christ. She's, or probably comes to Christ. She's set free from demon possession. And then they get arrested. They get falsely accused, they get imprisoned, they get humiliated, their clothes are stripped off them in public, they're beaten, they're thrown in prison, they're tortured while they're there. God miraculously shows up, it's not a prison break, but there's an earthquake, the jailer comes to Christ, then his whole family comes to Christ. And we left off there last week, verse 34. Verses 35 through 40, we won't read, but let me tell you what happens. They don't run away from jail, but they get released. Some prison guards come and say, you guys can go. Paul says, "Uh, we're Roman citizens, you beat us publicly, that's not okay. We want an apology. And so they ask the magistrates to come. The guys who sent them there, the magistrates come. They apologize profusely. They begin to beg them. It's repeatedly being said that you'd leave town. Will you guys please leave town? And Paul says, we'll leave town on our time. And they go visit the church that starts there in Philippi. And then they leave. And when they leave, we pick up in chapter 17, verse 1, they're turning the world upside down. Of all the people they come into contact with. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. When they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollonia. I think Luke puts these in there to mess with me. I'm pretty sure. They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, same as God's custom to the Jew first and to the Gentile, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And so he's taking their scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and he's showing these Jewish people from their scriptures, explaining and proving and reasoning, this is, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, they're coming to Christ. And not a few prominent women, and that's an interesting way to say it, many prominent women. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And I don't know if you've been jealous before. I've been jealous before. When you're jealous, you think some ridiculous things, and you'll do some ridiculous things. Look at what they do. So they rounded up some bad characters. So that sounds like a good start. They rounded up some bad characters, Jews, you know, religious leaders, uh, from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house. Jason, they believe, was hosting Paul and Silas. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting, and here's the accusation, these men who've caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason was welcome, has welcomed them into his house, and so he's guilty by association. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason... And the others postponed to let them go. We don't want these guys here anymore. They're causing problems. Things are changing. We don't like change. And so we're mad. You postponed, meaning you give us some of your money. If these guys come back, we keep your money. And so that's the deal that they had to try and run Paul and Silas out of town because they're coming there and things aren't going the way that they liked it, the way that they had it under control. The verse that sticks out is verse 6. It says in the NIV that these guys are causing trouble. They've been causing trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. I want to read it to you from a few other translations, English translations, and just see what it says here. It says, these guys, New Living Translation, Paul and Silas, have turned the rest of the world upside down, and now they're here bothering us too, disturbing our city. In the king's language, these that have turned the world upside down are now come hither also. 
Isn't kind of Shakespearean? It's just rich. I always got to quote that one. New American Standard says, These men who've upset the world have come here. English Standard Version, I like this one. These men who've turned the world upside down have now come here also. They're, they're here. The guys that are turning the world upside down. Are they turning the world upside down? Not really. I mean, if you track through accident, turn the whole world upside down, there's lots of places they haven't even been. The world's not being turned upside down. In fact, you're seeing a few converts in different places. A church gets started, and here you've got some people, many prominent women and some Greeks and a few Jews that come to Christ. Are they turning the world upside down? No. But they're living obedient lives to Christ. They're being his witnesses, Acts 1-8. They're doing what he says to do, which looks like to many of us is radical obedience. It's not really. It's normal Christianity. And what they're doing is they're coming into contact with people. And as they come into contact with people, as his witnesses, God's then using them, working through them to make an eternal difference. Their lives matter. And it's because they're living this faith out, they're doing what God says, the same thing that God's actually told us to do. And so what we see happening here with Paul and Silas, oftentimes we look at this and we think, that's radical Christianity. These are super Christians, and they're not. These guys, this is normal. This is what Christianity should look like. The problem is that many of us have settled for a very tame, castrated, lame, lower-key version called the American Dream that's been cleaned up, and we call it Christianity. It's a moralized version of the American Dream. And so what we go for instead is essentially what is promoted to us through marketers and commercials and other ideals that are out there from this country, not from the scriptures. And then we say the things that we don't do as Christians. I don't say these words. I don't go to these places. I don't cause these problems. I don't do this stuff. Instead of thinking about Christianity, what do you do? Do you say these words? Do you go to these places? Do you cause these problems? As a result of being a Christian? Because that's what we actually see here. And so what we do is we settle for an idea that I'll just accumulate enough stuff. That's the American dream, right? Accumulates whatever the stuff is. Dreams, accomplishments, memories, houses, fences, dogs, whatever the stuff is. Accumulate some stuff. Accomplish some meaningless goals. I'm sorry for stepping in toes. Some meaningless goals. I won fantasy football this year. You know how much that matters? Zero. And so your salesman of the week. Awesome. What, does that, what difference does that make for eternity? You bring the best snacks for the playdates. That's great. I mean, think about the things that we sometimes make so important. It's silly. And I don't care if it's an Academy Award, an Emmy, an MVP in the Super Bowl. It doesn't matter. And so we accomplish some meaningless goals. And then we build up a security blanket, a comfort system, retirement, whatever you want to call it. Enough stuff at the end of our lives that we don't actually have to trust God. Then we die. Guess what? That's a wasted life. Because we bought into a dream. But I didn't swear. (laughs) That's what we're going to say to Jesus. Or there's what we call radical obedience. It's really just obedience. Uh, People that surrender their lives to God, they do what he says to do, regardless of what the results are, regardless of what's going to happen, because they're focused on an eternal reward, something beyond this place. And those are the lives that matter. And that's what we see with Paul and Silas here. (laughs) They're guys that are living what you consider abandoned to obedience. They're going to do what's right. The question is finding the right spot, finding the right place. Where do you want us to do it? We already know we're supposed to be your witnesses. We already know the gifts and abilities you've given us. Where does the context? It's not whether we should do it. We're going to do it. And so we're abandoned to obedience. And here's why. There's a motivator. It's we're focused on a future reward. And so we're willing to give up things now. We're willing to sacrifice now. We're willing to surrender now because of what we see in the future. You see with that, you think Aaron Rodgers or any Olympic athlete or pick any athlete hasn't made sacrifices, hasn't done things no one else will do. Because they're going for a goal. They're going for a prize. 
See, some of us think we're just supposed to obey because we love God so much. We love God more than someone else, so therefore we do it. Do you think Paul and Silas love God more than you did? Sometimes we think that. That's not necessarily it. We're all commanded to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And why do we obey? It's out of love. We love God, so therefore we obey. If you obey, if you love me, obey my commandments. Jesus says that. John chapter 14 is as clear as it can get. And then John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, says this in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. This is love for God, to obey his commands and get this last phrase. And his commands are not burdensome. It's not, hey, I'm doing this because dad said so. I'm doing this because it's the right thing. I'm doing it out of the relationship that I have with you. And guess what? He gives us other motivators, like reward. And you look throughout the scriptures, and you see Daniel or David... Abraham or the disciples. Abraham leaves his home country, forsakes all the the idol-worshiping place that he's at to go and follow and pursue Christ. You see the disciples, they drop their nets to go and follow Christ. It doesn't matter if it's Peter or if it's Paul. Do you know what they all end up revealing to us? They've got a motivator. It's a future reward. You want to see people that live their faith out that you'd call abandoned to obedience. Read Hebrews chapter 11, the whole thing on your own. And you see all these different people. They live by faith. They live by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. This isn't really radical. It's really that you're doing the very thing that God expects all of us to do that are followers of his. And do you know what it is that that drives them? It's a focus towards the future. Abraham, the guy I just mentioned, he's mentioned more times in Hebrews chapter 11 than anybody else. And what you end up seeing is the very reason why he's motivated to do what he does is because of the promise of the future that God's given him. He never receives the promised land while he's here on earth. But he doesn't go back to his old way of life because of his focus towards the future. Hebrews chapter 11 says it like this. If they had been thinking, talking about his family, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to go back. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Heaven. Old Testament character, the New Testament, what does Jesus say to us? He says to us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19, 20 in that area. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures in, uh, on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So how we live here impacts what happens there. It's not eternity will not be the same for everyone. And I'm talking about everybody who's a Christian. You might be a Christian and you're in, but it's not going to be the same for you as it is for people who are abandoned obedience because they're focused on the future. He's going to prepare a place for us. The rewards that are sent there make a difference. And what happens? That's how Paul lives. That's how Peter lived. That's how Daniel, David, you see these characters throughout Scripture. And what about you? Does your life matter? Because those who make an eternal difference do so. They're abandoned obedience. And one of the things that causes us to be abandoned obedience is a focus on a future reward. The problem for many of us is we're so focused on here. It's what dupes us in the American dream. It's what gets us in so many times. You read the scriptures. Sometimes you read the scriptures and you're like, how could that guy do that? Read in the, in the book of Genesis, there's a story. There's brothers that have a brotherly rivalry, Jacob and Esau. And Esau forfeits his future, his birthright, for a bowl of soup. And you read it and go, what a moron. For a meal? But then I'm sure we all know people that have forfeited their family for 10 seconds of pleasure. Uh, we, people that had blown their career over one decision in that moment felt good. Wanted to do that thing. That short-term thinking. But then you see these other people, they accomplish this stuff, like athletes or whoever it is, because they are focused on the future. And here you got these guys. They're going into this city. They were just arrested 
falsely accused, uh, unjustly tried, stripped of their clothing, beaten publicly, thrown in jail. And then the next thing they do is they go do the same thing. They didn't do that because it felt good. They had a focus on a future reward. And you see what they did here. Go back in the passage, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. I'm not just giving us a travel log here. It says when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Why do they just pass through those places and then they go to Thessalonica? Why not stop at each, one pla- each place, share the gospel at each place? It doesn't appear they did that. They would have stayed the night there, but then they moved on to the next place. They're focusing on Thessalonica because Thessalonica is a strategic spot. Philippi was an important Roman colony, but none were more important than Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital city. It was a major center for commerce. At that time, it had about 200,000 people that lived there. That's a lot of people then. They had a road. It was the Roman road. They were probably traveling on that went through all these different places and came to Thessalonica. It was part of their main street. This would be a hub for sending the gospel out around the world. This is a strategic spot, much like Raleigh is. It's a capital city. Government happens there. There's a lot of commerce that takes place in Thessalonica. You think about Raleigh-Durham, with our hospitals, with our schools, with all the tech industry and all the research and science, different things that happen here. All the stuff that comes through this place. This is a strategic spot for the gospel. It's easy to forget that when you live here. You know, you hear about the awards every once in a while and you think, ah, oh, it's a good place to live. I'm glad that I'm here. But you think about how strategic it is for the gospel. You know, in the last five years, Raleigh's won awards for things like the fastest growing uh, city in the country, uh, metropolitan area in the country. I'm talking about the rural spots that go from five people to 50. It's already a metropolitan area that grows. It's the best place to have a small business. It was voted the smartest city in 2009. Um, it's almost always on the top five places to live. And you can read that and be like, that's good. Do you realize what a strategic spot this is for the gospel? The people that move here from other places and they live here for a little while and then they leave. And sometimes they won't ever come to our church. Sometimes they live next door to you. You bump into that stores. If you can impact those lives for eternity, it's like a natural missions agency. Just because God placed us here to live here. Now, my wife and I were, and the other families that we were talking to were thinking about where it was that we were going to move to plant a church. We believe God led us here. And one of the things was, because it's such a strategic spot for the gospel, we want our lives to matter. We want to make a difference for eternity. And so you come to this place, you get, you know, 100,000 or so college students come here and people move here for job transfers and because it's a nice place to live and all that stuff. And then they get sent out. How awesome is that? And you know, we're a church that we want to be intentional about reaching people for Christ. We did our vision about a year, a year and a half ago, 10x, trying to multiply our impact 10 times over the next 10 years and all those types of things. Can you imagine if every church in the triangle got serious about reaching the triangle for Christ? And I don't just mean the names on the churches, the name outside in front of, you know, First Baptist or whatever things that are out there. But all the people inside the churches decided, we're we're not going to play Christianity. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that, just come and have Christians be entertained and hopefully they entertain our kids while we're being entertained in the main room. And we're done with that. That's garbage. We're done with just being around, gathering around, hanging out with some people that vote the same way we do and like the same stuff we like. And we're going to play games. We're done with all that crap. We're going to start doing uh, God's mission and we're going to live out God's mission on purpose. And it doesn't matter what it costs us here now. And so we want to lock arms with a bunch of people that want to live on mission. Do you know what would happen? Let me tell you what happened first, because you might not like it. A bunch of people that play Christianity would stop coming. So you'd weed out people. But can you imagine if there wasn't another church for them to just find that would do those things for them? Can you imagine if, if we all, as Christians throughout this city, so I'm not talking about just labels of churches, all of us decided that was what we were going to do. We're going to be abandoned to obedience because we care more about eternity than we care about what happens here and now. So it doesn't matter what happens to us. Do you, you know what could happen? It would weed out a bunch of people. There'd be far less people attending churches. Do you know what else might happen? 
And we might become that city that Jesus talks about, a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Can you imagine if Raleigh Durham became a city on a hill? With all the influence that's here, with all the people that could be transformed, it could change Raleigh, North Carolina, the United States. It could have an impact on the nations. And that's how Paul and Silas viewed Thessalonica. And so they're, they're focused on getting to Thessalonica. And they want to share the gospel in Thessalonica. Now, it's real interesting that they do so, considering what's just happened in Acts chapter 16. They were beaten and imprisoned, and things that, from a human perspective, things didn't go well. But we see this pattern of this happening. It's a lot like what happened back in Acts chapter 14. If you were here before Christmas, we went through Acts chapter 14. Maybe you remember this. Paul's uh, traveling with a different guy at that time, another friend of his named Barnabas. They go into a city. They start preaching the gospel. People want to worship them. And then Paul has the perspective to say, no, 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 no. It's about Jesus Christ. I'm just a messenger. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And people don't like that, actually. What happens in verse 19 of Acts chapter 14 says, then some Jews came, came from Antioch, place they're just at, Iconium. They won the crowd over. See this theme here. They stoned Paul. They dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. So they threw rocks at him until the point that his body was so lifeless, they, they mistook him for dead. He's probably barely breathing. They drag him outside the city. They leave him there. It says, but after the disciples had gathered around him, probably nursed him some, he got back up, went into the city and listened to this. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. What they do in Derby, verse 21. They preached the good news in that city, won a large number of disciples. Why would you do that? Don't you see how this just happened? All right. Either, Paul, you're not very smart, man. Or there's something else happening here. And we know Paul's smart. We know that he's received some of the best education you can receive in that time. He's been discipled by one of the most famous rabbis of the time, Jewish rabbi, not a follower of Christ. We know at one time Paul was the guy that was dragging people off and arresting them and throwing them into prison. So why are you doing this now? He gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16, he says, When I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. I have to do this. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Cursing on me if I don't share the gospel. I, ha- I would fight for the right to share the gospel. I would, I, I ha- I'm compulsed to do it. Have you ever met somebody who's obsessive compulsive? They have to do a behavior. We all have some compulsions. Uh, breathing. If I try to stop you from breathing, I start choking you. You will fight to breathe. Paul's saying that about preaching the gospel. I have to. I am compelled to do. I have this urge that I cannot stop to do this thing. Just obey. To be his witness. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. I have to do that. What do you have to do? He says, I have to do what God's created me to do. But why? Why do I have to do that? Well, that was 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And verse 16, let me read you verses 17, 18, and we'll skip through the chapter. It says, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. I'm looking towards what I'm going to get. I'm actually trusting that what I'm going to get then is better than anything I could lose here. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. Then he says, what then is my reward? Just this. That I'm preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not making use of my rights and preaching it. And so he goes on to talk about denying his rights. He uses some athletic uh, descriptions here, some analogies of fighters and runners. And then verse 24, he says this. He says, no, I beat my body, I make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So you can be disqualified for the prize. So there's a prize that he's going for. What's the prize? Well, he tells us to the Thessalonians, he writes a letter to the, this church that he's at right now that's about to start. 
It's First Thessalonians, and he writes another one about six months later called Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, I think it's chapter two and verse eight. You can check me on this. He talks about here's my crown. It's you, Thessalonians. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're what I get in eternity. And I get God, and I get to be with him, and I get his glory and his majesty, but it's not going to be the same for everybody. I'm going to have you surrounding me, welcoming me in, giving crowns to me, rewards for me. My stay there will be different than for others because of what we've done here in Thessalonica. What about you? What eternal difference are you making in the lives of those you come into contact with? And why would you do it? Do you believe there's actually something better for you? And you look how Paul does it. He's obviously got giftings in the scriptures and gifting of teaching. And it says he goes into the synagogue, verse 2. And he does three things. And you can focus on these three things in the synagogue, the Sabbath days, when you talk about how we share the gospel. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, verse 2. Verse 3, he explained to them the scriptures. That's the second thing. And he's proving to them that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. So you think about these three things. He's reasoning. The word reasoning there is where we get our English term for dialogue. Greek word that's uh, translated here, reasoning. Now some preachers and different commentators on this passage will say then that what Paul was probably doing is he's probably having a conversation with the congregation. He's probably saying to them, you know, what questions do you have about Jesus? Somebody shouts out a question. He gives some kind of answer. And then he's reasoning. He's using logic in some way of a dialogue. It's probably not what's happening. Paul is a guy who knew what it was like to doubt God, to doubt Christ, to doubt that Jesus was the Christ, that he is the Son of God. He knew what it was like to have questions about all that stuff. He probably knew their questions, anticipated them, and in his preaching, addressed those questions. Not only is he reasoning with them, it says he's explaining to them. The word explaining means to open up. He's opening up their minds, he's opening up the scriptures, and he's sharing with them, trying to show them from life, and then from the scriptures, how these things work together. And he's using what scriptures? It's in verse 2, from the scriptures. There's no New Testament written at that time. It's just the Old Testament. It's the Jewish Bible. He's speaking at a synagogue to Jewish people. He's showing them from their book that Jesus is the Messiah. He's probably quoting some passages that are really clear. But all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, even the failure of the law, points us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. There's a promised one that's coming. We're promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there's a seed. And then what's Abraham told? You'll have a son. Is he the one? There's anticipation all through the Old Testament. And then David, is he the one? Who's the guy? When's the Messiah coming? It all points to Jesus. But there's certain passages that are so crystal clear. Paul probably went to some of them. Psalm chapter 22 Psalm chapter 22 starts off with the very thing that Jesus cries out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he probably, as he's reasoning and opening the scriptures to them, is saying, see, the very thing Jesus did was prophesied hundreds of years before. He said, what about this resurrection thing? Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, promises the Messiah is going to have a resurrection. He probably certainly went to Isaiah chapter 53. If you have a friend who's Jewish and you want to lead them to Christ, Isaiah chapter 53 is a great passage of scripture to go to. Speaking of the Messiah, it talks about the exact description of Jesus. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. It says this, I'll read you a couple verses. Isaiah 53, I'll read verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet was considered, uh, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted, so he would be rejected by us. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. God's wrath was poured out upon him. Remember when darkness covered the earth at the cross? The veil's torn. Now you have a way between you and God. People were separated by this veil in the temple. Now that there's a way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Just 
After saying, I go to prepare a place for you. By his wounds, we are healed. And Paul's probably saying, this is your book, Jews. This is your book. And they're saying these things. And remember what Jesus did. And let me explain this to you and open this to you. But then there's another word that's the most interesting of all three to me. He says, and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, how do you prove that? How do you prove the gospel? This is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. Why did he die for our sins? Because we were separated from God. He's solving a problem we couldn't solve. How do you prove that that had to happen? How do you prove that it's true? Do you think about proof? Proof is like in a court case when a lawyer says, you know, your honor or jury, I'd like to show you exhibit A, exhibit B, and you're building a case and you're trying to show the proof. You can't make them think this, but you can show enough evidence of it. You know what the greatest proof is of the gospel? It's a changed life. What Paul's probably pointing to is his own life. He's probably saying, hey, look, look at me. I'm a Jew. You think think I'm doing this because this is fun? Remember, I got, let me show you this scar. You know what this is from? This is from when I got stoned. Uh, Let me show you my back because that was the last city that I was in. Do you think I'm here to win friends and influence people? To become the evangelist of the month? (laughs) No. God's transformed my life. And I'm his witness. And so I'm obeying. Looks like radical obedience to them because of the culture that they live in. It's really normal Christianity. And the reason why he's doing it is because he wants to win them. They'll be his reward. They'll be the joy. They'll be the crown. And he says, here's my life. Because there's nothing more powerful than a changed life. I was reading this week an article by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you might know who he is. He's a very famous author. I think every book he's ever written has been on a New York Times bestseller. He's written books like Blink, um, Outliers, uh, The Tipping Point. Some of you probably read some of these books. And he was writing an article about another book that he, as he was working on, he was telling about his process of working on the book. It's called David and Goliath. And he talks about how God had him rediscover his faith in the process. And part of his journey of writing the book was he was doing some research. And he was going to meet with a woman in Winnipeg. Her name was Wilma Dirksen. And Wilma had had her daughter was uh, kidnapped on her way home from a bus stop one time about 30 years ago. And Gladwell had known about this story and wanted to meet this woman. Because what had happened in her story was that her her husband Cliff had a little uh, young daughter named Candace. And on her way home from the bus stop, she was taken. They didn't know what had happened. And a week later, the police found this young girl. She was bound Here a graphic story. Her hands were bound together. Her feet were bound together. And she was in a hut about a quarter mile from their home. Police called uh, the husband and wife, brought them in, told them the news. The next day they had a funeral. It was one of those stories in Winnipeg. You know, sometimes we'll get a story that kind of captures the media and they keep following it and covering it. It was one of those types of stories. And so all of the media outlets were there at the funeral and they had a press conference afterwards. And Cliff, uh, the husband, was the first one to take questions. And one of the reporters said to him, how do you feel about the people who did this to your daughter? And he responded by saying, I would love to meet that person or those persons because I want to share the love with them that they're obviously missing. Then Wilma came. She took the podium next and answered the same question. She said, I can't say that I've forgiven them yet. Now, they just found out the day before. I can't say that I've forgiven them yet. Gladwell said the emphasis was on that phrase yet. She said, but we've all done things or had the urge to do horrible things. She's sympathizing with these people. How do, how do you have somebody who is a sexual predator, steals your child, does terrible things to them, kills them, and then the next day after finding out, they're talking about love and forgiveness. And that's what Gladwell wanted to know. How do you do that? And so he traveled to go see this woman, expected to meet some super Christians, like superheroes. And he said, I went to a very ordinary house, very ordinary people. 
And he went on, and Gladwell's very uh, candid in the article, that he grew up in a Christian home, very committed Christian parents. They actually lived this stuff out, had a sibling that's a pastor, all the other families, they're committed Christians, but he was the black sheep. He wandered away. He said, yeah, I just, I'm not connected to any kind of faith community. He said, I, the logic of Christianity makes sense, but I've always liked the physical, the quantifiable, something you can touch. And so he had a hard time with understanding the power of God. And the article, he went on to talk about different people that he had written about in his book from history that he had read about that had lived great faith journeys. He said, there's something different about reading about someone else's faith and then seeing a real person that's demonstrated the power of God. And as he sat there in the backyard with that woman, he said he rediscovered his faith. God used that to bring him back. There's proof to change life. This ordinary woman that God does extraordinary stuff through to be able to forgive someone who does such a horrible thing. That's a miracle. That's not natural. That's supernatural. And that's evidence. It's a changed life. We live in a world that doesn't want to just know, do you know all your verses? I don't know. What difference does it make in your life? They're not just looking for a cleaned up version of the American dream either. No, is this real? And so the evidence is, has God changed your life like that? Has he changed it like he changed Paul's? Has he changed it like he changed Wilma Dirksen's? Has he changed it? Has he changed your life? And is it real? And if so, then what's stopping us from being abandoned to obedience? What many people would consider radical obedience from doing whatever God wants, whenever God wants. What's stopping you? If you can answer that question, that's a huge, that's the question of the day. What is stopping you? And as I thought about it, I thought about it for myself. I thought about it for friends that I have that I've talked to. I thought about it as just as a pastor. Sometimes people share stuff with you or in counseling situations. And there are a lot of different reasons. And one of them I have to address with you because I think it's such a, a travesty that's happening. If you were my friend and we were talking about this and I knew this was true about you, I would grab you by the collar and pull you close and go, you just don't believe. See, some people, that's the problem. And here's the real big problem. You think you believe because you go to church. I'm obviously talking to church people right now. You're at church. You maybe are moral. You've always gone to church. You do believe in God. That's great. The demons do that too. But you don't really believe this stuff. You don't believe what the Bible says. You don't believe in Jesus. You haven't banked your eternity on his death. You kind of got that, but you kind of got some other things and maybe had some experience, but you don't really believe. And so you're not going to walk by faith. It's just not going to happen. Because walking by faith is living according to the promises of God and you're obedient to the commands of God because of the promises of God. So you're not going to do that if you don't believe it. And so I I don't know what to say to you, to be candid. Believe? I wish you'd believe. Believe? But to be honest, and you have to be honest with yourself, no matter how much evidence was given, no matter how persuasive the reasoning, no matter which scriptures were shown, you wouldn't believe because you like what you like and you're going to do what you're going to do. I hope you'll be honest with yourself at least. There are other reasons. Uh, One of the big ones I think is fear. We're afraid. We've talked about fear a lot over the last couple of weeks, and so I'm not really going to talk about that one, but that's a huge hindrance. Another one, and we'll talk about a little bit today, is um, I think a lot of us, We're counting the cost, and we're not sure if we're willing. And we think about what might it cost me to be abandoned to obedience, to do whatever God says, whenever he says to do it, what will it cost? It might cost me relationships. It might cost me financially. It might cost me some way that I'm not sure emotionally. It costs me in lots of different ways that I'm not sure if I want to do it. And so then you've got to ask yourself, well, what do you get? If you're giving something up, what do you get? Like the Olympic athletes looking for the gold medal, you know, the MVP of the Super Bowl or whatever the thing is. What does that, what do you get? You know, what we ultimately get is God. We get God himself. 
All his glory, all his majesty, all of his power, all of his riches, all of his truth, all of his goodness, all of his grace, all of his, all of that stuff, his righteousness, his wrath, his justice, we get him. But if we're candid, most of us have to ask, so is it worth it? The very fact we have to ask, is it worth it, reveals something about us. It reveals we don't understand him and we don't understand us. So anybody that understands him, understands themselves, understands their own sinfulness, what he's done and what our sin really is. Most of us don't understand our sin. Let me tell you how I know this is true. I'll tell you about my own life. If you catch me in a moment, I'm not thinking about preaching this message, and uh, you know, I'm not thinking about what I'm reflecting on in Scripture at that point or whatever. I'm, I'm just kind of going about, and you say, do you sin, Scott? And I go, yeah, I sin, but I mean, I don't do pick something that I think is worse than whatever it is that I do. And then I start gossiping about someone else, even if I don't use their name, I'm just, I'm, but I'm heaping more sin upon myself. That's how, I, that's how serious. Well, I mean, I might lust, I might get jealous, I might not be patient, I might be prideful, I might get angry, but I don't kill anyone. Like, whatever thing you fill in the blank with. You ever done that? Why is it that we compare our sin to other sin and we don't compare our sin to God's holiness? It's because we don't understand His holiness. Why is it that we can, what is it that gets you upset? We get upset about different things. We get passionate about injustice. I know there are many of you, friends of mine, and I get upset about certain injustices. You hear a story like uh, Candace Dirksen that gets taken, a child that's abused. She didn't do anything to deserve that. Awful things happen. If you read, it's just terrible. What happens up happening? And that'll make some of you angry, passionately angry. Human trafficking, orphans. Uh, some of you get mad about the fact that it's cold outside. There are people that don't have homes. They're freezing to death. Hungry people. There are all kinds of tragedy around the world. Why do we get more upset about that than sin against a holy God? Because our sin's not ultimately about other people. It's about an affront to God. You realize every time we sin, we're violating the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Any moment we choose sin, whether it's a judgmental glance, whether it's chippy talking, whether it's lustful stuff, whatever the things are, you pick it. It's an affront to God. It's we chose something else that we love more than God in that moment. I was reflecting on my own sinfulness this week and read this from one author, and I'll get it to have you reflect on your own sinfulness. He goes on to describe what we do when we sin. He says, the glory of God is not honored when we sin. But it's not just that the glory of God is not honored. It's the holiness of God is not reverenced. The greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. In that moment of sin, all these things are happening. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The promises of God are not relied upon. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. The infinite, all-glorious creator of the universe by whom and for whom all things exist, who holds every person's life and being at every moment, is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored by everybody in the world. That's the ultimate outrage of the universe. Why is it that we can become so emotionally, morally angry about poverty, exploitation, prejudice, and feel so little remorse over the fact that God is belittled? Let me tell you why. Because of sin and because we don't understand our sin and his holiness and his majesty and his goodness and his presence and his power and his love and his grace and his mercy. And, his, and what you do is when you see scripture, you see people who God used to make a significant difference. They got this stuff. You see people like Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6. 
Woe to me. I'm a sin. He sees God. I'm a sinful man. I live among sinful people. I don't deserve to be in your presence. You're going to just wipe me out? God shows him grace. You know what happens? Later he says, I'll do whatever you want. You send me. <laughs> you see a guy like Peter. It starts off the book of Acts. We look at him. He's like, well, that's a powerful guy. Turning the world upside down. 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. He goes, he gets beaten for the name of Jesus and then rejoices and says, oh, wow, I can't believe I got to suffer for Jesus. You see, Paul, Paul says that passage that Jad read when we were worshiping. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection and fellowship and his suffering. Why? Because I want to get the power of the resurrection. I want to know him intimately. Whatever it takes here. What happens to these guys? They see their sinfulness. You know what happens with Peter? You see Peter in the gospel? The guy's a moron. The guy's mouth runs way faster than his brain. I love him. I totally get it. Totally get it. I'm sure he talked fast. (laughs) Peter, he blows it so bad at the end of the gospel when a servant girl comes up to him and he denies he ever knew Jesus, that he thinks he can't be used. He's weeping bitterly. And then, you know what happens between that and Acts chapter 2 when he preaches and 3,000 people come to Christ? John chapter 21 is what happens. Where Jesus comes to him and says, yeah, you did blow it. But I love you. I forgive you. Obey. Go obey. What does Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery? Go and send this out doing it now. You're forgiven. See, Luke chapter 7, one of my favorite stories, says, hey, listen, those of you who forgiven much, you're the ones that love much. Do you realize, I'm not asking whether you killed somebody or you gossiped about somebody. Do you realize that's an affront to a holy God? You have no shot apart from Jesus Christ who became your sin so that you could become his righteousness. And when you grasp that, you're going to lose some stuff here? Do you know what you're going to get there? You get him. It's like one of the shortest parables in the Bible summarizes this whole deal. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. It's one verse. It's the whole story. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that field. And so he finds the kingdom of God. He finds his treasure in a field. And then he goes, he's going to sell all of his stuff, everything he has. He doesn't go, man, I got to get rid of the rookie card too. Can I just, for memory's sake. He says that in his joy, I would delight in getting rid of anything here, any benefit, any reward here for what I'm going to get. Because it's so much better. Do you believe that? And so what is it that stops you? That's the question of the day. What is it that stops you? If you can identify that thing, that is a huge step in your faith journey and in your life. What is it that stops you from being abandoned to obedience? What is it that would ever cause you to sin against a holy and righteous God? If you can identify the thing in your life, that's a huge step. Because now you know what it is that's going to cause you to waste your life. Let's pray. Father. I come before you and uh, I just ask that you'd forgive me, uh, forgive me in moments where I actually contemplate whether I know better than you or where there's moments where we go with what feels good over what uh, we think you called us to do. Father, we know that you'll empower us to obey you. Will you please do that? Give us your spirit. And there are those here that think they're believers in you that aren't, they don't have your spirit. God, I pray that you'd bring a heavy conviction on their lives. Do whatever you have to do to get their attention now uh, before they stand before you. And Father God, I pray that they would believe. And if you need to place your faith in Jesus, now is a great moment to do so. And Father, I pray for those that are believers, that are followers of yours, I pray that we would not get duped into 
the American dream or some other temporary fix or something that we think is better than you. God, show us your glory. Show us your majesty. Show us your truth. Show us your grace. And just speak into our hearts right now your love. Give us your mercy. God, we come before you. We are clay and you are the potter. Will you mold us, change us, and in the process, um, use us to impact others and change this world for your glory, that more knees would bow and tongues would confess that your son is Lord before they step into eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat>